Hello and welcome to the Roller Coaster podcast. I'm your host Nikunj Kothari and this is a podcast where you'll hear real stories from innovators and pioneers describing the ups and downs of their career. For today's episode, I'm really excited to talk to Wes Donohoe. Wes works at One Medical. He recently transitioned to working on special projects after serving as their vice president of product for 4 years. Prior to this, he was the head of product at Ship and previously head of product at Live Nation Labs. In this episode, Wes talks about all his ventures from being scuba certified at age 12 to launching three companies after the 2008 financial crisis and steering one medical through covid early this year let's jump in hey wes welcome to the show today i'm looking forward to our chat yeah me too thank you how are you and your family doing at this moment family is healthy and happy we live here in the city and my oldest son is in first grade he's actually starting to go into in person schooling now so it's pretty exciting He's overjoyed and having a less kid in the house has been fantastic for my wife and I. It's really great to hear that you and your family are keeping safe. Are you planning to join this mass SF exodus? No, not yet. We love the city and we think that yeah, we're just having a great time here in the city so we plan to stay. I think the contrarian view is that now is the right time to get into SF. So I'm glad that you're staying. But let's get into it. I want to hear all about your incredible ventures. Let's first start with hearing about how you got scuba certified for free at the age of 12. So, when I was 12 in the 7th grade, I was sent to military boarding school in St. Petersburg, Florida, and you would think I would be a bad kid, but I actually begged my parents to send me there because I heard that I could learn how to fly a plane, scuba dive and shoot guns. And as a 12-year-old boy, that seems like the coolest thing in the world to do. Um and you could do it in Florida versus where Wilmington, Delaware was from. And so I when I was there, I learned to scuba dive, I got my first scuba diving license there and I found out that the kind of local dive shop that I could work out a relationship with them where that I could promote scuba diving on uh the campus on my boarding school's campus and in return I could fill the classroom and then in return I could work out and get free licenses. And so as a 12-year-old I was shopping to my teachers and staff and fr- other friends uh to get a scuba diving license and telling them how amazing it was and ended up getting just a, an enormous amount of different licenses and anywhere from underwater hunting to advanced to rescue uh to nitrox so i can you know breathe different air and and stay down longer so it was a it was a pretty wild ride and a good time when you went to college at babson your next venture was starting your own boat cleaning company how did that happen yeah so i i started actually with my wife my wife now she's my girlfriend at the time we were in chicago and i grew in Chicago sailing I had moved from Delaware to Chicago when I was 15 and so really got into sailing on the water in Chicago and then my parents owned a, a small speed boat and so the worked out a deal with my dad that if it was always clean so if any time he wanted to use it if the boat was clean I as a college student could also use the boat any time that I wanted 
basically it was the cleanest, smallest boat in the harbor. I was polishing it and buffing on a regular basis. And while I was doing that, people would come up to me and say, oh, you're, you're a boat cleaner? Could you clean some boats? And so just literally at a happenstance, turned around and started then charging for boat cleaning on the slip that I was on and ended up then doing the bottoms of sailboats before sail races. So I'd actually get like scuba suit on, go onto the boat, clean the bottom of the sailboat before the race. Or during the week was probably the best job I had for a long time in college in a bathing suit out on a harbor cleaning boats and making some good money was was uh was a fun was a fun time as well i'm sure you were a very popular kid for having the nicest cleanest looking speedboat <laughs> after finishing in college with a major in entrepreneurship in 2004 you decided to start your own company in the height of the financial crisis in 2008 how did you decide to venture out on your own in those uncertain times? So I, when I graduated college, I was eager to start my own company, but I was also growing up in Chicago and knowing a lot of the, the financial markets and the derivative markets out of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade. It was, a, it was also a huge, exciting opportunity to, to go down that path. I ended up going to trading versus starting my own company. And after a few years of doing that and having a little bit of success, was able then to say, look, like I've got some money. I've got some financial stability. I had engaged to my wife at that point. And so was was feeling really an opportunity to, to, to finally take that leap and go off on my own. And I uh, yeah started my first company. Um, my first company was a, a fully weatherized touchscreen that I put by pools and on golf courses where you could order food while you're sitting on the golf course. You could order food from the little restaurant or the main restaurant and then have it delivered out to you or you're sitting by the pool and you could say, oh, I want this item and then it would deliver out to your, deliver out to your seat where you're sitting by the pool. And so the idea was that it was, it took me all around the country. I actually was out in the Bay Area. This is how I started to fall in love with San Francisco. I was actively trying to sell a lot of the country clubs in the Bay Area. Then my thought was that if I sold at that level, uh, then I could easily go down to the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, and, and keep going down uh, because I had started at the uh, top of the echelon. And yeah, I, I did that for three years. I tell people that I was addicted. I was addicted to the sale or addicted to it. It, it never took off. I, I probably should have shut it down after the first year, to be candid with you. On the phone, I would call people. And a club would say, oh, call me back next month or call me in three months. That's when we're doing our either annual planning or our next member board meeting. And, oh, could you come out to the club and present? And so those just little like highs along the way just kept me going and saying, oh, I got to stay around for three more months. Or I'd get a sale and I'd install it into that one club. And then I would say, oh, now I'm going to easily sell all of the other clubs around me. And so I would park myself. I was in the Bay Area for a few months, actually, just shopping my hmm. product around the different clubs. And it would, they would say to me, oh, come back out in a few weeks. And I would, that would just fill me up for that few weeks to then try to get to the next club. But it just, it never really got off the ground. And I kept internalizing and telling myself constantly, just, that one month later, you just stick it out one more month. 
And my another story on this topic is her family and friends are like, remember that startup company that was going to close and then they got that big deal the last day before they, the day before they were going to close and the rest is history. And now it's a, you know, fortune 500 company. It was like, everyone was encouraging me to keep at it and keep persistent. So I, I had a great community of people helping me and, and supporting me and that kept me going as well. So you talked to us a little bit about it, but tell us more how you were surviving and keeping yourself motivated. It was dark in times and had a lot of ups and downs along the way. The The reality is that I have a fantastic support with my family and my uh, friends. I had friends that were doing really well or at different stages and buying homes or moving to the suburbs or getting those significant promotions around me. But I, I, I still, I, I have this kind of glasses half, half full mentality that I was, well, this next thing will work and this next thing will work. And so I was always excited about that opportunity. And I had a good foundation that, you know, I could do it. I, I, I was, I, I was laser stim on spending money living in Chicago. And then when I moved out to San Francisco, I lived on my friend's couch for several months and really just keeping my costs low. I, I was not the you know typical late 20s person running around and spending money because I just didn't have it. And my excitement was and my my joy was trying to you know sell my next thing or sell my next venture or get my company off the ground or that's what was that's what was my excitement was my hobby was my you know uh stimulant of choice versus a lot of other things that definitely all of my friends around me were doing. So you wrap up these ventures and then you decide to work with some of your past co-workers at Live Nation Labs in 2012. You make up your own title as Director of Analytics. Tell us how you transitioned from that role to be the head of product there. Dan Rummel, who you know, and is someone that I've done multiple ventures with and is an engineering leader here at One Medical, where I am now. We had started a company and we had disbanded the company after the 2012 election. And Dan was getting heavily recruited by Live Nation and joining their engineering team within this group called Live Nation Labs. And uh, lo and behold, he was saying, you got to bring this guy Wes on. He's amazing. You'll love him. Bring him on. And they would look at me like, what do you do? What do you mean? You're not a designer. You're not an engineer. I have no idea what product management is at that point. And so it, I never really fit. And thankfully, Dan convinced them that I was the right person to hire. Because honestly, I didn't interview with anyone. I had a few conversations with some of the heads. And they said, okay, we've got Dan that's vouched for you. And so they put me in. And they're like, I guess Wes is going to figure out what he does. And it's honestly what happens. And so the HR person at this Fortune 500 company now emails me and says, what's your title? And I said, I, I probably put, I put director of analytics because I was like, my job is going to be analytics. And I don't know, director sounds like a great title. That would be a fun title to have. And lo and behold, a few, a few months later, I do find out that as I'm doing well and having some success there, the head of the group, this guy by the name of Eric Garland sits down with me and says, I can't believe you told him that your title is director of analytics. And I was like, what do you mean? No one told me what my title was. And that's how I got into it. 
But then I was in, in that role in the analytics role where I've always the mentality that I've had and still have to this day is how do I find value? How do I add value to what I'm doing? How do I add value to the company? And so I had access and was doing all of the analytic uh, work at Live Nation from the conversion funnel on our iOS, Android, and web apps to all the different properties that the Live Nation uh, brand did. And so I started then saying, oh, I'm seeing opportunity in increasing the conversion funnel and increasing the booking flow to sell more tickets to you know the, the next greatest Beyonce show or Jay-Z show or something to that effect. And so I one day plugged in some JavaScript of Optimizely, signed up for a free trial, and just started running experiments myself with jQuery, my janky ability on coding, and basically just started manipulating the conversion funnel in booking tickets and actually had a lot of success doing it. And so that then took me into, oh, well, okay, what is he doing? How is he doing this? Wow, this is actually pretty impressive on how effective some changes are. And so then I became a product manager for the first time, leading all of the the web app at first. And then within a few months after that, actually overseeing all of product development, design, and a little bit of user research for all of the Live Nation digital products. So there's a quick transition from analytics to SVP of product, uh, doing some you know, kind of leading a fairly large team impacting all of our digital products. How was that transition from working on your own small company to managing cross-functional teams like engineering, product, and design? Yeah, the nice thing that I had and the attitude that I think I took was that I knew what I didn't know, and I learned a tremendous amount from the designers. I learned a tremendous amount from the other product managers. And so I would then just turn back and say, okay, what can I do to make them better? What can I do to alleviate barriers for them? How do I solve problems that's going to accelerate and, and set them up for success? And then I'll learn from them, actually, how do you do this job? Like, can you? Like, it was pretty apparent about it. At one point in time, I was the peers with some of those people, and then I became their boss or their boss's boss, and so or the managers' managers. It was a pretty significant change, and so I had to very quickly show value about why I'm in this position and what I can do to make their lives better. And that's a kind of controversial position, being in a peer and then being their manager. And, and in some situations, I was managing the managers of them. The nice thing with with the group that I was in, we were still relatively small in the larger ecosystem of Live Nation Entertainment, which is a Fortune 500 company. But one of the things that I loved doing was that I would go out and just, okay, how do I add value? One of the biggest areas is actually communication with the concert promotion team. And so we, as the team, ran all the digital assets that drove concert sales and drove engagement to concerts. And then on the flip side, there was another part of the organization that was responsible for actually promoting concerts and driving sales. And then there was another group that was responsible for putting on the shows in the venues. And so I just got on planes and just started talking to all of them and saying, look, like there's a mismatch between us as a group. How do we, what can I do to align incentives? What can I do to, what, what can I bring back to the team to help alleviate and accelerate things? Uh, for you all, for us, because we had all we, internally on the team, we wanted to bridge those gaps, but no one was able to. 
And so I was like, that's an easy win. I can get on a plane and talk to people and bring influence and camaraderie between groups. And so that was the first thing that I did first. And it added a bunch of value to the team. And we were able to see even compounding effects on the products that we were delivering. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? And how did you end up fighting that for the days that you did? No, because I'm like, maybe other people will say this, but I feel like I'm just like a pretty, I'm an open book. So I'm like, I don't know anything about that. Like, I would rather communicate that I didn't know and learn and and then say, okay, here's where I'm going to add value. So I think that allowed me to, and has allowed me to get smarter faster. Uh, because when I let my guard down and I tell people I don't understand and, and they're comfortable with that and I'm able to, they're able to like, and then I'm actually able to learn how they're thinking and what they're doing. And so I've always tried to just be frank and transparent in my capabilities at that time. You're leading product at Live Nation and also advising companies on the side. One of them is Ship. And after a while, you end up eventually joining as the head of product there. How did that transition happen? Dan, I followed Dan anywhere. All, all kidding aside, it was really that he introduced me to the company. We we both joined Live Nation. He'd left Live Nation to go to ship either CTO when it was like a, a seed or kind of pre-seed company. And at that point in time, he asked me if I'm interested in talking to the team and getting to know the group. And I was not ready to go and leave a company, uh, kind of a stable income. Honestly, like at that point in time in my life, it was the first time that I was getting like a stable income, had actual sustainable money, wasn't the bare minimum just to pay my rent. And so I think my wife would have divorced me if I was like, okay, now I'm going back to the startup. (laughs) But we just had a kid as well. So like stability for me was important and I was over-indexing to stability at that time. But I'm in the Bay Area to take big leaps and big opportunities and big risk on new ventures and new opportunities and actually figured out a way to scratch both itches. I started advising and initially I was doing about 10 hours a week where I would, the ship office was down the street from Live Nation office and I would either go in the morning before work or after Live Nation, I'd go over to the ship office and I'd spend a bunch of time working with the founding team and Dan, and and as that team started to grow that, the rest of the group on various different initiatives across product and sales and analytics and engineering and built up a a great uh, relationship with that team. I did a year of that. So it it was fun off and on for a year. You were at SHIP for a few years where you saw a lot of innovation happen, both in product and in the warehouse. What was the biggest challenge you think you faced that ship? I got a taste of this at Live Nation, which was the starting to do things that were just not called digital. So a lot of stuff at Live Nation was after you bought your show, how do you get to the show? What do you do when you're in the show? And then when I went to ship, it just put that through that thing on steroids. And so it was a really exciting time to be able to thinking about it's a technology enabled or technology powered is the different words that get thrown out a lot now, where we were an operations business delivering picking up packages and shipping packages, but we were accelerating everything through technology and creating a kind of differentiated and fantastic experience with tech. Oh, yesterday, and this guy was like, I can't believe you were at Ship. I loved Ship. I loved Ship. It was an amazing product. I get it to this day. And it's a testament to the team that did everything there. But I think the, the 
biggest lesson that I learned or, or the thing that I learned or the challenge I learned is that we had a product where every single day we had a core group of people would tell us that they are absolutely in love with ship. Yet our economics were set up for volume and the way that we were built was set up for volume, not like high volume, high turnover business. And so we priced it that way. We thought about it that way. Yet our users that loved it used it one or two times a year. And so we just didn't have that. We really didn't see it for a long time, honestly. Like we were blinded and I was blinded with, wow, this people love this thing. Okay, let's just go find other people like this that love it. Or let's try to build certain initiatives to get to introduce it to different people because they're going to love it too. And instead of doing maybe like a hard pivot, which we had talked about early on in the company's formation, hard pivot into more of a an e-commerce seller or a B2B business, I hired someone on my team to join and lead partnerships. And so him and I went down to eBay and we had a product manager and a small little team. And we, we established a pretty deep integrated partnership with eBay and we were excited about it, but we just didn't, we didn't over index and we didn't over index on that investment. We were doing it off the side of our desks. Because we basically had everyone every day, we had a slew of people just telling us about how much they love the product. Yeah, I remember those days where we were trying to pivot, but we were seeing some success, but not enough. You ended up leaving ship after a while. How did you decide what to do next? Yeah, so I I took a little bit of time off. That was a, a kind of bitter end as that thing went up and then came down. And so I I leaned on two things that I started to really love. I started to really do some self-reflection and realize that I love the idea of physical and digital. How do you leverage technology or bits and atoms? How do you move different things around? And so how do you leverage technology and the physical service design element and combine the two to make truly transformational products and experiences? And so that was, for me, was a cornerstone. The second one was I wanted to get into healthcare. My parents actually, my dad was an EMT and my parents started an ambulance company when I was a, before I was born. And so I did also some self-reflection on what industries do I want to work in and what do I want to work on? And I kept coming back to that. I had worked in the shipping business, the entertainment business, the, the country club business, the food and beverage business. I was all over the place. And I said, okay, I want to find something that is physical and digital, and I want to find something that's in healthcare. And I looked, and one medical, lucky enough, was uh, fit both of those criteria, and they were willing to hire me, and I was off to the races from there. How big was the one medical team when you joined? You know, started there, team was, the product team at that time was about six people, maybe a little bit less, and went through the craziest ride upswing that I've ever been a part of. Team almost 10x as a product team, all of product development and technology 10x as well along the way. We're moving from five-year-old soccer to more of a professional sports team where we were going after different things and more of a balanced approach. And we did that through really leveraging technology to drive significant impact in the organization and give the organization scale. And so when we started, we didn't have that really model figured out. Technology wasn't used as, and seen as a way to accelerate the business or, or to deliver a positive ROI in some situations that could accelerate the business forward. 
and we weren't very good at hitting deliverables on time. We, there wasn't a lot of confidence in the organization that if we said something, we were going to do it in a reasonable amount of time. And we got those two nuggets working and got that flywheel going. And so just kept putting more money into technology and, and kind of saw that payout over those, you know, four and a half years that have been there. But it's been a, it's been a crazy ride during that time period, had multiple executives and multiple friends kind of turn over in the organization. And we've had a new CEO at the time and someone that I, I truly respect both Tom and, and Amir that are there. But going through that as the company is growing and replacing different key executives had, had significant impact on the, on the individuals in the organization. And then from the outside, it's looked like, oh man, this thing has just gone up and to the right the whole time. But throughout that experience, there was definitely some massive highs and lows as, as we were going through it. What innovations has One Medical brought that you see are being copied everywhere? It's no secret that digital health or just digital health specifically as a category has just exploded in investment. So healthcare is close to 20% of GDP. You throw a dart anywhere and you're going to hit a billion dollar industry. And any sliver of the healthcare ecosystem is, is bigger than, than most, than a significant portion of what other industries will people will, than total TAM is that people are looking at. And so I think, you know, it's always been a competitive space. It's always been companies coming in and, and trying to replicate the one medical model either in healthcare or either in the dental industry, the pet industry or, or other things within the space. You've also seen parts of One Medical that have spun out and, and people have gone after and tried to unbundle a little bit of the services that we do. There's a lot of incumbents that are in the space because it's a massive part of the overall market, the overall economy. And I, I think it's just heating up, which I think is great, which I think is actually a fantastic opportunity. COVID happens early this year. How does One Medical respond to it? So... We went public on January uh, 31st of this year. We were in New York City. We got listed on the NASDAQ. We rang the NASDAQ bell. There's a bunch of us that were there. And then I flew back with a handful of people back to San Francisco, basically left a little after 11 o'clock, hopped on a plane, flew back to make it back for uh, a party with our team and our families and so that we could celebrate here in San Francisco with our group. And we took the BART back from the airport. And while we were on the BART, looking on Slack and looking on phones and seeing how things are going and realized that in LA, we had a you know potential outbreak of COVID in our clinic, in one of our clinics. And, and our providers were top of mind. How do we keep them pr pr protected and safe? How do we keep our administrators and our admin staff at the front desk safe? And also, how do we keep our, our members safe and how do we help navigate them through this challenge? And the next day on Saturday, there was a task force set up and they were running and it started to run seven days a week. And from a high to a low, we basically are a high to, oh my God, what, what's going to happen and what, what's going to happen as this thing is starting to hit our shores. And so honestly, what we did from a technology perspective is fairly little. We, as a operation of a clinical organization and a human people team perspective, put a majority of our effort there. We didn't know what was going to happen next. And so we were reacting a day by day, changing standard work, sta changing messaging, changing clinical protocols as we went. The nice thing on the technology side, because we built everything in house, we just 
started customizing it through configurations. As a great example, we have a survey tool that we were using to survey our patients. We just turned it the next day into COVID questionnaire. And we're one of the first organizations to have the COVID symptom screeners. We had testing launched very quickly to the to our first earnings call. We announced that we did close to 2% of the nation's wide testing. And we're a fairly small footprint as an organization, but we were able to flip on and start doing COVID testing because we had the supply chain, we had the infrastructure, we took our offices and we just converted them into COVID testing. We, people weren't coming in for primary care visits, so we flipped them into COVID testing and then started doing drive-bys, drive-through uh, drive centers. On the tech side, it was fun because we were like, okay, how do we configure it? How do we change and do all remote Zoom-like uh, video visits versus asynchronous or versus in-person? How do we take things that capabilities that we have today and slightly augment them to be delivered in a, a 100% virtual visit, you know, virtual world in, in many situations? And then we're building up on the tech side. Okay, here are the things that we're going to start. If these, here are the things that we need to start investing in or, or doubling down on to sustain going forward. But we set up what we have kind of reaction teams inside of the group where we just disband and recharter teams on the spot. We have a process to do that. And so it was a kind of the highest high to the, oh my God, I have no idea what's going to happen next within less than 24 hours. What changes do you expect to stay permanent? even after COVID is over? It's been a massive catalyst for change. I think in the, in the healthcare space, one of the biggest problems is access. One of the biggest challenges of getting to see a primary care doctor, getting into an appointment has been access related. It's been transportation. It's been availability of appointments. It's been appointments at times that I can do and leave my work to go do it. It's not just nine to five. And so I think what COVID showed us is very quickly is that people are willing to do their appointments virtually and, and not only willing, but love it. And so you can actually use the one of the biggest problems in healthcare of access. Actually, we've been able to prove that you can deliver care in a virtual setting very efficiently. You can start to use more connected devices to do more things in home. And all of those things we had to put on accelerant because we had to with COVID and we're seeing those work and we're seeing then solving a bunch of access problems. And that's an area that is, is really exciting that I think has been a fundamental problem within healthcare for a long time. And I think all the innovation that's happening out of COVID is going to help solve that. I think the other side is that maybe the other side is that employers for the longest time were just offering insurance and just covering insurance for you. But now they're realizing it's not just insurance, it's more. It's mental health, it's COVID testing, it's screening protocols when you come into the office, it's distancing and, and thinking about as, a, as an employer, you're taking care of your community and how you protect your community. And we've seen a significant growth in that market that we, we've told publicly, this is not private, we've told this publicly, that our growth and our kind of selling one medical as a benefit to in employers, employees has just accelerated. And I think it's a mind change with our employer customers that they're seeing that significantly. Whereas before it was, you know, a few, few, you know, organizations that were thinking about that whole well-being were doing a lot, but now across the board, every organization, every employer now needs to not just think about, oh, I just need to give my employees insurance, but how am I taking care of them, their whole self? And so it's opening up 
the, the mental health space. It's opening up muscular sclerosis and looking at really fundamental problems with their employee base and COVID testing included. I'd say those two things are pretty exciting to me. It's, it's a huge opportunity to solve some big fundamental problems that have been in the healthcare space for a long time. I always like to end the show by asking our guests to share a time that felt like a roller coaster and what did you learn from it? The example that I, I'm going to give you is uh, back in 2008 and probably late 2007, 2008, I forget the exact timing, but I had just decided that, look, I'm going to start my, my kiosk company. And I had a really good friend that was a trader that left trading firm and was saying, I'm going to, he's going to go start his own company as well. And he had a little company that was in the kind of student loan space that uh, a venture capitalist in San Francisco had acquired for a little bit of money and said, hey, but I want you to come and help help our other portfolio companies and, and some of the stuff that we're trying to get off the ground. And so he started as a kind of consultant and an employee of this company called The Point. Uh, and so we're in Chicago. And so we meet up and he's, hey, I'm working with this company, The Point. I'm super excited. I've got this idea that I need to figure out how to teach people how to use The Point. And I'm going to do it as a group. We have this tipping point concept, but I'm going to do it for coupons. I'm going to sell to organizations and businesses that if we get 50 people to agree to buy this thing, it'll tip and then everyone will get it. And he's, I'm going to sell this coupon business. And I'm sitting there with him and I'm like pitching him on my kiosk business. And this thing's going to be the greatest thing. Look at all the stuff. And we're eating lunch and excited. We're both on our highest highs and we're eager about what's going to happen in the future. But I constantly kept telling him, I'm like, you're going to sell coupons. This is literally what you want to do. This is your grand plan. I'm like, this is nothing. I've got this great, this kiosk. I'm going to build this hardware and this is going to be fun. That next year, that coupon tipping point turns into Groupon. They changed the name from the point to Groupon. And multiple times he asked me to join his company to say, hey, come over, join Groupon. This thing's working out. Yeah, we're only doing a few deals in Chicago, but it's growing like mad. And I'm on this internal, like nothing's working. I'm trying to sell my kiosk and I'm going to get someone to call me back. And thank God one person's going to call me back this week and I'm going to talk to them. And, and then I'm seeing my friends and multiple of my friends, because he then starts hiring all of his other friends, just joined the greatest rocket ship at that point in time, explode in Chicago. And I, at that other point, was still positive and still excited and trying to keep this thing on. But at the corner of my eye, I'm looking at someone that I was like, oh my God, they've just been a part of something that would be the greatest thing in the world. And so it, it taught me a lot that actually I, that is going to come and it's going to happen. And you know what? I can't get jealous or I can't get mad or I can't get anything like that. This is, I'm singing my own tune. I got married at that point in time. I was, I had a lovely, you know, family and, and life and was healthy and was happy. And I really never put it, never got too far down that like envious road. And that was probably the toughest point of my career of trying to do that. But it's actually been the thing that has held me together as I've done every different venture and every different opportunity with different people. I have tried to keep an even keel and know that other people around me are probably going to do either have wildly more success than me uh, than I'm really close with and I'm friends with, and I missed out, or vice versa. People are going to look at me and say, wow, I can't believe this is what I've accomplished. And I, I just have to realize that I have to be true to myself and be confident myself. 
and know that I've got the support around me. I, I remember I'm like, you want to sell coupons. I was the dumbest person in the entire world at that point in time to be like, this is the worst idea possible. It was actually something that I reflect on a lot, make sure that I ensure that I'm staying true to myself and, and keeping myself centered and moving forward. So. That's a great story. With that, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing all your highs and lows today. It's been really great chatting with you. All right, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Roller Coaster Podcast. If you like the show, please make sure to subscribe and review it. If you would like to know more about the podcast or have feedback, please visit our website, rollercoaster.life. Till next time.